You're listening to a presentation of The Rising. We're a real church for real people where you can belong before you believe. We're always honored to hear how God is working in your life through this ministry. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, hit us up at wearetherising.com or on Facebook or Instagram. Finally, if you'd like to invest in what God's doing through this church, you can always give online through our site. Thanks again for tuning in and get ready. Lean forward with an expectant attitude to hear a message from God's Word. You know, in World War II, uh, Oscar Schindler, uh, an ethnic German from Czechoslovakia, who's also a member of the Nazi party, uh, moved to off Poland where he had the hopes of getting rich. He, he wanted to make a fortune. He wanted to make it big. And so when he moved to Krakow, Poland, he acquired a, a factory there where he made and sold enamelware. And he enlisted the help of Isaac Stern, a Polish Jew, to help him manu- uh, run the manufacturing in the factory. And in turn, Stern hired Jewish men and women to work in the factory. And Schindler loved this because he could pay the Jewish laborers less, which meant he would make more. But Stern loved this because for every Jewish worker that worked in the factory, it meant that their life was spared and they weren't shipped to the concentration camp because they were seen as a benefit to the economy. And as time went on, uh, Schindler made it rich. He he got big. He he made this huge fortune. But there there was this one moment that shifted everything for him. There was this one moment that turned everything around. See, in, in Krakow, Poland, they were working on the Płaszow concentration camp. They were constructing this concentration camp. And when it was finally constructed, the SS had orders to clear the Jewish ghettos and to move all the Jews into this concentration camp. And so when they were in the process of liquidating the Jewish ghettos, uh, I mean, a, a lot of the people who lived in these ghettos worked for Schindler and his factory. While they were uh, emptying the ghettos, uh, some of the Jews who lived there were killed. And then, and then others were beaten. And Schindler, a Nazi himself, saw the way these people were treated, and he was horrified by it. And it was in this moment that everything shifted for him. He, he dedicated his life not just to making a fortune, but to saving people's lives. And so what he did was when, when his laborers were moved to this concentration camp, he struck a deal with the German commandant there, uh, and he bribed him so that those prisoners could still work in his factory, and then um, he, he went to bat for his workers uh, as, as some of them were being killed in the concentration camp. And he said, I'll bribe you more. I'll pay you more. Just spare my workers. And so he saved these people's lives by starting to spend the fortune he had amassed. And then as time went on and Germany uh, started to slide toward defeat in the war, uh, the SS was ordered to move the Jews from the Passov concentration camp to Auschwitz, where they would be exterminated in the gas chambers. And Schindler got word of this, so uh, he, he bribed the commandant again, and he said, can, can I just bring some of those workers with me to work at a new factory? And the commandant said yes, and so Schindler made a list, a list of 850 names of people who would be saved. This list was known as Schindler's List. And so these, these Jews were moved to this new factory, uh, but Schindler used the rest of his fortune to support them, to care for them, and to figure out how to hire more Jewish workers so that more people could be saved. And then by 1945, at the end of the war, Schindler had run out of money, uh, but it was over. And Germany had surrendered, they were defeated, but by the end of the war, the Schindler Juden, the Jews of Schindler, the Jews who were saved by this man, numbered 1,200 people. 
See, Schindler went to Krakow, Poland with the hopes of making a fortune, getting rich, making it big. That was his goal. That was his mission. That's what he wanted to achieve and accomplish in his life. But something shifted. Everything turned around for him. And he went from trying to make money to using all the money he had to save lives. And the reason why Schindler did this is because he realized there was something bigger going on here. He realized that life was about more than just making money, and he wanted to give himself to something bigger. If you're here for the first time or you've been here for for a little bit, uh, I just want to update you with with where we are. Uh, We're in the midst of this series called What If? And um, this is a series where we're we're daring to ask this question, what if, so that we could dream, so that we could have a greater vision, so that we could imagine what more God wants to accomplish in us and through us. And so we're daring to ask the question, what if? And, And as we ask this question, it will cause us to live at a new level in life if we'll do what we come up with, right? See, see, a lot of us know some stuff, but won't always let what we know determine what we do, right? Like, like I know I should read more because leaders are readers, but I don't read like I should. And I know I benefit from it, but I, but I don't always do it. I, I know I should get on a meal plan and I should meal prep because that'll help me achieve the physical goals that I have, but I'm too lazy and undisciplined to meal prep. I mean, I know I should do it, but, but I don't. I know I should spend less and save more, but I'm so undisciplined and I don't always, always want to do that and I want what I want now and so I just don't always manage my finances like I should. And so I know what I should do, but I don't always do it. See, I'm convinced the thing that's preventing you from living the life God has called you to is that you don't always do the thing God has called you to do. I mean, you know what you need to do. We know what we need to do. But what we're doing in this series is we're asking the question, what if we just dared to actually do it? What if... We really live this out. And so the first week of the series, we asked this question, what if the church really is the hope of the world? Like, what if the church, this right here, is the hope of the world? What if we are God's plan to bring the hope of the gospel to people? What if we are God's plan to be the light to this dark world? What if that's true? Then what would look differently in our life? How would we live differently? How would we give differently? How would we sacrifice and serve differently if we really believed that the church was the hope of the world? Last week, we asked the question, what if we could really live debt-free? Like, like what if we could live without debt? What would our life look like? How would we have peace and joy in our life? And then we dared to ask the question, what would it take to get debt-free? And so now we're on this journey as a church. How do we become debt-free so the people of God can use the resources of God to do the will of God? Because so many of us, we want to do great and amazing things. God, I'd love to do more for you, but my master visa says I got to pay them. God, I'd love to do more for you. I'd love it, but my master car payment says I gotta pay them first. And so we just asked the question, what if we were done with that and said, God, we're gonna give the resources you've given to us to do a greater work in the world. So this is where we've been. And today, I wanna dare to ask this question. What if there really is something bigger going on here? Like, what if there really is something bigger going on here? Would you take a moment to write that down? That's the title for my sermon. This is where I'm going to preach from. And and you're already so rowdy when it comes to clapping for first and second time guests, clapping for receiving an offering, for for worship and all that stuff. I want you to be rowdy about taking notes. Yeah, I can't wait to take some notes. (laughs) But but write, write my title down. What if there really is something bigger going on here? What would our life look like? How should we live as a result of that? What if there really is something bigger going on here. You know, this phrase, there's something bigger going on, um, 
is a phrase that frustrates us. Because in our life, we don't always see the bigger picture. We just see what's in front of us. We just see what's going on. And because we don't always see the bigger picture, because we don't always see the full vision, it can frustrate us. This is why you're frustrated at work sometimes. Because, because something's decided, something's being done, uh, things are operating a certain way, and you're looking at it, and you're like, this is stupid, right? Why, why was this decided? Why is this going on? Why was this decision made? I mean, if I was in charge, I would have done this. I would have said this. But here's the problem. You don't sit where your boss sits, so you don't see what your boss sees, which means you don't know what your boss knows. And so maybe the decision was made because they realized there's something bigger going on here. There's something bigger that impacts just the IT department. There's something bigger that impacts more than just the sales department. So your boss is looking at the bigger, there's something bigger going on here. And when we understand, oh, there's something bigger, then, then everything comes to light. It's, oh, I get it now, right? This is why my kids get frustrated because they want, no, they need candy right now. I need it, I need it. And I tell them, no, you can't have candy because they don't understand there's a bigger picture going on here. The reason why I'm saying no is because I don't want you to have childhood obesity and diabetes. But they don't get that. I can't explain that to them. No, you can't have Jolly Ranchers because of this. They just know this is what I want right now. This is why my kids get frustrated when they want to go to the trampoline park. And I say, no, you just said it right now. They don't understand there's something bigger going on here. We have plans. We're meeting up with people. People are expecting us. I can't just drop everything because you want this right now. There's something bigger going on. How many of you know I'm not just talking about me and my kids? I'm talking about us and God. We get so frustrated in life because we don't understand, wait, there's something bigger going on here. I don't understand, I don't get it, but there's something bigger going on here. And so when we don't understand that, it can funnel us to living frustrated, but, but also when we don't fully understand that there's something bigger going on here, it can cause us to settle for settled living. Because I don't realize there's something more, there's something greater, there's something more important than here and now. And so we can, we can look at our life and not understand that there's something bigger going on here. So we say, well, I guess we'll just always fight with one another in this marriage. I guess that's just how it's going to be. We can say, well, I guess I'll just always be unhappy with my job. I guess paycheck to paycheck living and embracing debt is a way of life. So that's how it's going to be. And I might as well just get used to it and embrace it. But no, there's, what if there's something bigger going on here? What if you could live differently? What if it doesn't have to be that way. What if? What if? And what I want to do today is I want to pull back the curtain and I want to point to some pieces of evidence that we see in the scripture that shows us, oh, there really is something bigger going on here. And one of the best places to begin is in the beginning. And if you've been part of this church for any amount of time, then chances are you, you know the creation story because I refer back to it so much. It's just so rich in, in so many different things. And, and especially about helping us understand who we are here and now. See, see, if you ever want to understand who you are, it's always good to go back to where you've come from. It's good to, to see where you came from to better understand who you are now. And this is why, I, I just want to point this out, this is why the story of evolution is so dangerous. Because here's what the story of evolution says. The story of evolution says there's nothing bigger going on here. The story of evolution says that you're an accident says that you're a cosmological mistake, that there is no plan, there is no purpose for your life. You are not made in the image of an all-loving God. You're simply an accident. See, the story of evolution says just survive. 
like, like, like win out over everybody else. Try, like build up your life. Do everything you can to succeed because it's survival of the fittest. This is what the story of evolution says. There's nothing bigger going on here. But Genesis, 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 the first book of the Bible tells a different story. Genesis says, oh, there's definitely something bigger going on here. Genesis says that there's an almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, and he made you in his image, and he made you so that you have a plan and a purpose. God has a destiny for you. There's something bigger going on here. Here's, here's how Genesis begins. Genesis chapter 1, it's, it's, it's my favorite words in the whole Bible, some of my favorite words. There's a lot of words in there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to explain this, that God speaks all things into existence. He says, let there be light and there's light. Let there be land and there's land. Let there be plants and there's plants and animals and all that. But then, but then God gets to the crown of his creation, the pinnacle of creation, his masterpiece, humanity. Genesis 2, 7, it says this, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed his breath. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living being, a living person. And if this sounds far-fetched to you, I get it, right? I mean, I get it. Because the Genesis story says that God speaks all things into existence, but then it says that God formed out of the dust of the ground. It's like God got down on his hands and knees and formed out of the dust of the ground this man. And then he breathed his breath into his lungs and he came alive. Like, if that sounds far-fetched to you, if it sounds like, I get it. But here's what sounds far-fetched to me, that a lightning bolt hit a pool of primordial ooze, activated something in there, something started wiggling around, grew legs and a tail, crawled out, and that's your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy. Like, that's far-fetched to me. And I could go over the six other major theories of origin according to evolution, and those are all difficult for me to believe. I mean, it's tough for me to go against the laws of science that that life can come from non-life unless there's God. Because science says life can't come from non-life. That's the law. The theory of evolution is a story. And and that's what creation and evolution are. They're just stories. They're stories about how we came about. I mean, we don't know. You don't know. I don't know. It's just people looking at evidence and saying, based on the evidence that we see, we think this is what happened. See, for me, I believe the story of creation because Jesus believed the story of creation. That's first. But second, I believe the story of creation because it's just easier for me to believe that. Like, it takes me less faith to believe that. It takes me way more faith to believe what I was taught in school with the theory of evolution because I believe that there's this almighty God, and if he's as big as we think he is, then the story of creation isn't too impossible for him. I also believe this. Because evolution gives me no hope. And maybe I'm just wishing and dreaming. But I'd rather wish and dream and live a life filled with hope than one of despair. Evolution says there's nothing bigger going on here. Creation says there's definitely something bigger going on here. And then Jesus comes into the scene. And he reiterates it. He, he, he emphasizes. Here, before we get to Jesus, I just want to show you how the story plays out. See, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that God is creating all things. God creates, uh, 
humanity, God creates everything that we see. And what we see is that God is with Adam and Eve, the very first two people here on earth. God walks with them. He talks with them. So God is here with humanity in paradise. And then Genesis 3 takes place. Genesis 3 is when sin enters into the world. And you and I know what sin is. Sin is everything that's wrong. Sin is everything that separates us from God. It's all the regret, all the shame, all the pain that we have in our life. Right? And Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, they do what each and every one of us do every single day. They make a decision to rebel against God, to go their own way, to say, God, not your way, but my way. And when they do that, that's sin. And even people outside the church know what sin is. Right? Like, like if a politician were, were to lie to, to his constituents, a, a newspaper might write an article where it says this politician sinned against his constituents. If a husband cheats on his wife, we might say that he sinned against her. Panic at the Disco wrote the song, I write sins, not tragedies. I mean, people know what sin, sin is wrong. It, it, it's just this, uh, I can't believe. And sin, because you and I are guilty of sin, it separates us from a holy God who has nothing to do with sin. And so all throughout the scripture, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, there's this story of sin and life with sin. And this is where we are here in the middle. See, the first two chapters of the Bible are about God with humanity here on earth. No sin. And here's, here's what's interesting. The last two chapters of the Bible is about God with humanity here on earth, and there's no sin. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Revelation 21.1. Here's what John, who's writing this down, said he saw. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down from God. Some people are so obsessed with flying up to heaven. What John says in Revelation is that God is going to come down. I'm concerned there might be some people flying up and God is coming down. He's like, where are you going? Right? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. You can count on this. God says, I'm going to come back one day and make my home here. I'm going to set up the city. The very first two chapters of the Bible begin with God here. The very last two chapters of the Bible begin with God here. The first two chapters of the Bible begin with no sin. The last two chapters of the Bible begin or end with no sin. If sin never entered the picture, all this, the Bible would be four short chapters. God created everything. God was with Adam and Eve. God was with humanity in a garden. 
as things grew, as they built things, as things got more complex, God was with them, and a city developed, and like, this is it, that's it, that was God's desire, that was his plan. And you and I, because of sin, we live right here in the middle. And what can happen is because we live here in the middle, as we start to think this is what life is all about, we get caught up in every day, we get caught up in what we see, we get caught up in living this life filled with sin. But God is saying, no, there's something bigger going on here because I'm going to return one day. Heaven is going to come crashing to earth. God will make his residence here with the people. This is what Revelation 21 says. And all sin will be wiped away. All things will be made new. And so what God intended to do in Genesis 1 and 2 will come to fruition in Revelation 21 and 22. But here we are living in the middle. And then Jesus comes into the scene and he says, hey, 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 wait, wait. You've gotten sidetracked. You've gotten distracted. I want to remind you there's something bigger going on here. This is what he teaches us to pray. And this prayer that billions of people pray, Catholics, Christians, Alcoholics, Anonymous, Jesus teaches this truth. There's something bigger going on here. Matthew 6, 9. Jesus stands in front of a crowd of people and he says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Hey, when you pray, I just want you to remember there's a God in heaven. Remember that he's above all, he's over all, he created all. God is bigger than anything you can face, anything you can fathom, anything that comes against you. God is in heaven and he's bigger. When you pray, just remember that. Can you just remember that when you're facing some sort of trial, some drama and some friendship, some problem you got at work, when you're stressed out with your kids at home? Just remember, wait, wait, wait. Our Father in heaven, there's a God who's bigger than everything. And he sees me, he loves me, he cares for me. May your kingdom come soon. This is what he's praying. May heaven come crashing to earth soon. Come on, Jesus. Bring heaven here. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, hey, remember there's something bigger going on here. One day heaven is gonna crash to earth. But in the meantime, pray that this world looks more like heaven. So you do your job to bring love and peace and joy and hope to people here and now so that when heaven crashes to earth, God gets down and he's like, oh, looks, looks a lot like home, right? Like our job is to make this world look more like heaven in the way that we love and the way that we care for people and the way that we help and the way that we give and the way that we serve. So when heaven crashes to earth, God's like, I don't have much work to do because these Christians These people who said they followed me actually live for me, and they live the life of heaven here and now. Man, what if there's something bigger going on here? What if life is more than just building your own kingdom, but making this world look more like God's kingdom? I'm preaching better than you're taking notes. I hope you're writing this down. Verse 11, give us today the food we need. Here's the deal. God is in heaven. God is holy. God is big. God is great, but he cares about the small things too even your next meal. And so God, I'm gonna trust you for that because I realize life isn't about that, but I still need that. So God, I'm gonna trust you to provide. Forgive us our sins as we've forgiven those who sin against us because one day we're gonna sit at the great banquet table of heaven with people. And if I haven't forgiven you, then it's gonna be an awkward conversation. Hey, can you pass the ketchup? I still remember what you did to me back then though. 
No, like there's something bigger going on here. It's not just here and now. There's, there's something more. And, and, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Jesus says you have a very real enemy who wants to distract you, who wants to get you sidetracked, who wants you to get caught up in whatever it is you're mad about right now, whatever you're angry about right now, whatever you're stressed out about right now. God, would you deliver us from that and remind us there's something bigger going on here? Not my pride, not my ego, not my own kingdom. There's something more at stake. Deliver us from the evil one. Guys, I've been thinking about this. I've been praying about this. I've been like, what message am I going to give to my church? And the message I want to give you is there's something bigger going on here. Your marriage doesn't have to suck, but it can be an image of how Jesus loves the church by the way that you love one another. If you get that there's something bigger going on here. Your family doesn't have to just be this thing where you're running from event to event to event to event. At the, a million years from now, those events aren't going to matter. Whether or not your kids know Jesus matters, there's something bigger going on here. Right? I, I mean, your pride, your lust, that addiction you keep going back to, you have a God who has overcome all of that and he offers you the strength to say no, to find freedom, to throw off those chains. He's already broken those chains for you. You don't have to live that way. Heaven is going to crash to earth one day, and the question is, what are you going to do? What are you living for? I mean, here's, here's the invitation Jesus gives us. Because of this truth that heaven is going to crash to earth one day, because there's something bigger going on here, the invitation Jesus gives us is in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your way, take up your cross, and follow me. What? I mean, can you just imagine that? Like if Jesus were here today, he'd say, listen, if you want to follow me, give up your own way. Stop trying to do it on your own. Forget your desires. Forget your wishes. Forget whatever it is. Say no to all that and follow me fully. Would you, would you be willing to do that? Would I be willing to do that? He says, take up your cross. Take up your instrument of death and follow me. And if Jesus was here, he'd say, if you're not ready, see you later. I wouldn't say that. I'd be like, come on, just keep coming. Maybe kind of, sort of try and follow Jesus. Let's take it one step at a time. Jesus says, no, it's all or nothing. That's scary to me. Because now I got to look at my own heart. I got to look at my own life and say, what am I holding on to? What do I need to get rid of? What do I need to change? Let me ask you, if you're a Christian, when's the last time you changed something in your life so you could follow Jesus more fully? I think for many of us, we've said yes to Jesus and we're following him and we think we're good. I've already changed some things, I'm good. When's the last time you looked at the scripture, you looked at what God's word said and you said, oh my gosh, I don't like this, I don't agree with this, this isn't, ah, but God says it. So I guess I'm gonna start doing it. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, say no to your own way. Take up your cross. Come on, let's go. Because the life I'm going to lead you to is a life worth living. 
The reason why Jesus can say this statement, make this invitation, is because he realizes there's something bigger going on here. And I think for so many of us, it's so difficult to say yes to Jesus, to go all in with him, to trust him with our lives, because we don't get there's something bigger going on here. He says, here's why. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. I already know. I already know. I'm telling you ahead of time. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And here's why. He says, lay down your life. Follow me. Take up your cross. Here's why. Because I'm going to come back with my angels and the glory of my Father, and I'm going to judge all people according to their deeds. Jesus knows there's something bigger going on here. He knows what the end looks like. And he's saying to us, what what you're living for now, this temporary stuff, this mess that you see, that... Get rid of that. There's something bigger going on here. And I want you to live for my return. Don't just sit in a seat and sing songs and wait for me to come back. No, live actively. Show the world what it looks like to follow me and love me and live for me. Because I'm coming back one day. Jesus reminds us life is more than just living in the middle. He's going to come back one day. And so there's something bigger going on here. And because of that, I don't know about you, but I want to pour out myself to serve others. I want to share the hope that I have in Jesus with other people because they need the hope that I have. I want to work to build his kingdom and not my own kingdom because my kingdom will not last, but his will last forever. I want to give Jesus my all and follow him with my life. And because of that, I want to love my family well. I want to be more patient. I want to be more kind and caring and forgiving and strong and brave and confident in this life because I'm living for something greater. There's something bigger going on here. And I want to love audaciously. I want to give till it hurts. I want to serve like it matters. And I want to have a joy that overflows because there is something bigger going on here. Do you see it? Do you see it? And I want to share with you the number one indicator that you get that there's something bigger going on here. The number one indicator you understand it. It's not that you pray fervently. It's not that you sing fiercely. It's not that you attend church regularly. I hope you attend church regularly. Come on, keep coming. Here's the number one indicator that you get that there's something bigger going on here. It's what you do with your money. It's what you do with your money. I knew it. Church just wants my money. That's where it was going. Fast is greedy, needs my money. Uh Uh-huh. There's the catch. Listen, that's not me saying it. I would not say that. I, I, I'd say, like, like, just come to church. Like, do that. And that's how you know. No, Jesus is the one who says it. This is what Jesus says. The number one indicator that you get something bigger is going on here is shown in what you do with your money. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, he said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here it is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The number one indicator that tells us where our heart is is where our money goes. You want to know what you really care about? Look at what you spend your money on. Look at what you give your money to. 
That is the number one indicator. You can fake it till you make it. You can lie in people's faces. But when you look at your checkbook, that's when it, that's when it shows what you really care about. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Where our money goes, our heart follows. And here's the deal. What you do with your money has nothing to do with your salvation. You, you, can, be with hev- you can be with Jesus. You can be with God in heaven for all of eternity and never give a dime back to him. This has nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation is based on what did you do with Jesus? Did you say yes to him? Did you believe that he died for you on the cross, that he rose again from the dead, so much so that you said, I'm gonna follow you and be immersed into you? That's what determines your salvation. This money thing has nothing to do with your salvation, but has everything to do with your eternity. It has everything to do with your eternity. Because Jesus said, don't just store up for yourselves treasures here on earth. Store up treasures in heaven. And listen, don't miss it. The cars, the clothes, the house, the jewelry, the vacations, going out to eat, cable, the internet, all of that is good. And I want you to have it. I want you to have 80 cars. I want you to have 50 houses. I want you to have a big old boat and invite me to come water ski on it. Come on, get you some stuff. I'm not mad at your stuff. Here's the deal. Paul even explains this to Timothy, his young protege. He said this, command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God richly provides us everything we have. Why? For our enjoyment. So enjoy your stuff. Get you some stuff. Go ahead. I want you to have it. But he also says, command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. See, the way that we know we get it is we say, God, everything I have comes from you, and I want to use a portion of those resources to do something great for you. This life is not about me building my little kingdom. So that at the end of this life, I stand before God and I say, hey, look at all the stuff I built. Look at how cool my car was. Look at my neat house. Look at these things that I bought. Look, I got the latest phone when it came out. God's not going to hear that and be like, wow, way to go. That is so awesome. That is so cool that you spent your resources on that. No, 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 we're going to stand before God. And what if, what if, what if we said, God, I saw that ministry requires money, so I gave so more people could be reached. I gave so that people could meet you. I gave so that the Bible could be translated for people in Papua New Guinea who didn't have it so that they could know you better. I gave part of what you've given me so that I could make a difference in this world, God. I use what you entrusted to me for your glory. Isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy that some people would say yes to Jesus? Jesus, I believe in you. I love you. I want to give you my life. I'm going to trust you with my soul. I'm going to trust you for my eternal salvation. I'm going to trust you with everything except for my wallet. The number one indicator to know that you get this is what do you do with your money? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. At the end of the movie Schindler's List, Oscar Schindler, who spent his entire fortune on saving the lives of his Jewish workers, came to a stunning conclusion when it dawned on him that there was something bigger going on here. The closing scene of the movie portrays Schindler leaving to surrender to the Americans as the Germans had lost the war. But as he's just about to leave, he sees all the men and the women that he saved. And he can't help but think that he could have done more, that he could have saved one more person. I could have got one more person, but I didn't. I could have got one more person, but I didn't. At the end of this life, you and I are going to stand before God, and we're going to give account for our life. Again, this isn't about salvation. This isn't about are you going to be in heaven with God or not. That de that's dependent on what you do with Jesus. Have you said yes to him? If you've never made a decision to accept Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. If you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross, that he rose again from the dead, you want to follow him, you want to live your life for him and be baptized into him, I want to invite you to mark that on the connect card that you got when you came in. Drop it off at the black table. We've got some people there who would love to talk to you about that decision. That's the best decision you ever make in your life. But we're going to stand before God and have to give an account. What did we do with Jesus? Did we say yes to him or not? But also, we're going to have to give an account for what did we do with the resources he gave us, our time, our effort, our energy. What did we do with what he entrusted to us? And I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand in front of God with regrets. I'm going to have some regrets already. But I don't want to say to him, God, I built my earthly little kingdom because I thought that's what it was all about. I thought this life was about me and what I could do and what I could accomplish in my kingdom. I don't want to have that regret. So here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to embrace the truth that there really is something bigger going on here. And here's how we're going to act on it as a church. First, uh, when I'm done, we're going to have members from our team. They're going to come down and they're going to pass out trays. And in those trays are stacks of cups. The bottom cup has a piece of bread. It's there to remind us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. The top cup has some juice. It's there to remind us of his blood that was shed for us. I want to invite you to partake in communion anytime you'd like as, as uh, we sing this next song. Um, but here's what we're going to do to take action steps. Because we believe there's something bigger going on here, we don't want to keep the hope that we have to ourselves. And so we've said throughout this series as a church, we're going to stoke our passion, stoke our fire, get excited about what God is doing here, and we're going to spread the word. We provide you several different ways to spread the word. We give invite cards at the black tables. Grab some invite cards. Personally, invite some people to come join you. But here's what we're going to do next weekend. As an entire church, we're going to blitz this city to clean windshields. Here's what we've done. We have 2,000 cards like this. It says, you deserve the best view of the 757. 
your window has been clean, compliments of the rising of real church for real people, then on the back is our website. Here's what we're going to do. My wife and I led the way a couple weeks ago in starting this, but we're going to do this together as a church. We have 2,000 cards. What if this weekend coming up, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we wash 2,000 windshields, left this card just to serve people in this city and to let people know about this church? What would happen if just 1% of those 2,000 people came to church? It's 20 people. 20 people have the chance of meeting God and hearing the gospel for the first time. What if 10% of those people came? That's 200 people. Why? All because we cleaned a windshield. We have stacks of 100 in Ziploc bags right at a table back there. When you leave, you take this. Next weekend, together as a church, we're going to blitz this city and wash them windshields. Y'all with me? Come on, because there's something greater going on here. There's something bigger. Don't clap for all the stuff I said in my sermon and not do this. So we're going to put our faith into action by cleaning some windshields. Here's the second thing we're going to do. At the end of this series, on December 8th, in the past what we've done is an end-of-year offering where we return uh, a gift back to God, the biggest gift we've ever brought to Him. We're not doing that this year. And said this year, I felt like God was saying to me, I need my people to be obedient and giving first and foremost. Like it's great for an end of year offering, but I want it to be a way of life. I want generosity to be a way of living. So here's what we're doing at the end of this series. We're gonna give you a chance to become a self-proclaimed tither where you say, God, I'm gonna return the tithe back to you. I'm gonna bring the first 10% of what you've given to me back to you. Because I realize that ministry requires money, and more money means more people can be reached. And I want to support the work of this ministry, but God, more importantly, I want to give back to you as a way to remind myself that it all came from you. So on December 8th, don't put that in your calendar to not be here that day. That's going to be one of the most powerful Sundays we have. I want you to be here, and between now and then, be praying, God, Change my heart, change my mind. Help me see there's something bigger going on here because I don't want to say what could I have done? What more could I have done? Who else could I have reached? Let's just do what God says and be people who are generous because when we do that, we're able to reach more people. We're able to support great work like Jacob and Elizabeth Smith and Papua New Guinea. We're able to give socks to the homeless. We're able to do so much. So that's the two things that we're going to do. We're going to clean some windshields this weekend, 2,000 of them, come on. And then on December 8th, we're going to have a chance to say, God, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is because I believe there's something bigger going on here. Thanks so much for listening. We pray God inspires, challenges, and motivates you to become greater through what you've just heard. Again, be sure to check us out at wearetherising.com. Remember, your best days are still ahead.